There it is. All righty. Here we go. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days when the disciples were growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called the whole group of the disciples together and said, It is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables, but carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the necessary task. But we will devote ourselves to but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the entire group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, with Philip, Prochorus, Nicantor, Timon, um, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a Gentile convert to Judaism from Antioch. They stood these men before the apostles who prayed and placed their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Lord, we pray that you'd open up, our, open up your word here this morning. God, speak to us, teach us, and empower us with your words. First in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, yesterday, I changed the oil in my Harley-Davidson. It took five hours. <laughs> now, I've done this before, not in a Harley, but in my car. It takes me literally like 15 minutes, maybe. Like 10, 15 minutes to change the oil in my car. But it took me five hours and several trips to the store. All of these receipts for tools after tool after tool after oil. These were just from yesterday. Just from, just from the oil change. Because <laughs> I had to get tools I didn't have. And Harley makes this one tool because they, they put their oil filter in a stupid place. <laughs> where it's like crammed in there in the front, but there's like a cable that goes in front of it. So you have to get like one of those oil, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about, the oil wrench, you know, oil filter, rent, you know, thing, t- attachment. But it has to have a little hole for the cable. So you have to like squeeze in it. You know, it was a headache. <laughs> and, oh my gosh, but I learned a new skill. So if anyone has a Harley Davidson that needs an oil change, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> it's still going to be a hundred bucks, but... Because that's how much, how much, that's how much the oil costs, man. But like you know, I I learned a new skill, but I relearned kind of an old skill. I learned that you have to use basically mud, you know, oil in your in your tank. It's it's like it looks like gel. It's like going in there. It's like so thick, but it's cool because you can actually just buy the one fluid for your primary, for your main tank, and for your transmission. So you just use the one thing. It's all in one fell swoop. It's pretty awesome. But it takes work. And it took a long time to learn the, the new skill and to learn the new tools of this new endeavor. But it's almost, in the sense, relearning a skill that I already knew. Something that I thought I knew, but in a new context. First year that I've ever had a, a motorcycle uh, that I'm starting this, this spring season with. Right? So I just wanted to get it all, all ready. And so, as we think about our faith, and thinking about how things are different, and how we look into a new context for our lives, 
Now, constantly we're looking at new futures, new decisions, new context going forward, things that we have to relearn. Because, I mean, guess what? The world's different. The, the world is so much different than when I was a kid. You know, back in my day, these young whippersnappers today, they don't understand. But our cultural context is different than, shoot, even three years ago. And can even, anyone ever even think about, like, imagine what the world was like three years ago? Before all this garbage? You know, I've forgotten so much. But our personal contexts are continually shifting and changing. Our faith is something like a skill with a motorcycle, with learning a new skill or simply relearning something in a new context. Our faith is like that. We need to keep, you know, continually be shifting and changing. Our faith is something we need to learn and keep relearning. You know, the, the thing, the whole concept of, you know, I've changed my mind. To the world, this is a sign of foolishness. You change, wait, you changed your mind? What? Or like parents who used to be like, you know, you know, you know hippies back in the 70s. You know, in my generation, my generation, you know, our parents used to be back in the 60s and 70s. They were like strung out on LSD and acid and, you know, smoking weed and stuff like that. And their kids later on were like, well, you did the same things. Well, yeah, I messed up my life. That's why I told you not to do it. I messed your, my, my life and I don't want you to mess up your life. So don't take after my example. Learn from it. And so changing our mind is a sign of foolishness to the world, but it's a strength to God. It's not that the Bible or God has changed. It's that our understanding of the Bible and of God are growing. They're maturing. And you don't mature unless you change your mind. Unless you relearn things and learn new things. So when I maybe used to believe something so strongly and you know, adamantly, and I would post things on Facebook. It's so funny. Like you, know, like you get the Facebook memories. Like you know, seven years ago, eight years ago, I'm just like, oh, I'm embarrassed by that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, literally when I was a youth pastor, I, I preached a sermon that said, don't be a whore. I may have learned a few things since then on how to not to turn. You know, although it was like, I, I was like one of those like, well, I still kind of am sometimes, but just one of those people that like really like to shock people, you know? And so, you know, and so it's, it's like, that was kind of supposed to be a shock value thing. But I was talking about Israel and all that, you know, the sin and, you know, anyway. But you learn. You grow up. You mature. Um, and, you know, I've come to realize when, you know, when it's, when what I believe is wrong, even though, and here's the thing, even though there are some people and many people still in our world that might believe the thing that you're changing your mind about, it's okay to change your mind. And then become into disagreement with those who you used to agree with. There's a whole world of theology that I used to agree with that I now am vehemently disagreeing with. We need to have this this ability, I need to have the strength and the willingness to say, I was wrong. I changed my mind. A.K.A. I repent. Metanoia. Right? Meta, changed, to be changed afterwards. Noia, oh, thinking, mind. The biblical word is change your mind. Come into agreement with 
God. When it comes to us as God's saints, we need to be willing to change our minds. Back when I was in youth group, my dad's number one thing on mission trips was this. Like, I pray for a spirit of flexibility. Flexibility is our key word for us as a mission trip, for us as a youth group going for a mission trip. Because God is the one who's leading the mission trip, and he knows the people that need him. And he knows who he wants to use us to reach. So especially when it comes to reaching people. When it comes to church organizations and structures and direction, we need to be able, even ourselves, to change our minds, to agree with God and go His way. Because love serves and shows God's love. That's going to be the main thing that I'm going to be talking about here this morning, is that love serves and shows God's love. The purpose of the church is to love and serve one another and to put the Lord and His love on full display. That's our purpose. That is the whole purpose of God's church. The authentic church of Jesus Christ will find a way to love at all costs. You know that song, Reckless Love, we're talking about? It's God's love, reckless love for us, but He gave us that love so that we could have that same reckless abandon, that same devotion, that nothing can get in the way of our love for one another and for Him. Finds a way to love at all costs, to show the goodness of our God, to put Him on full display, to show that Reckless and befuddling, I love the word, befuddling love and devotion of our, to our gentle Father. Now, now we just have to continually change and approach our, you know, change our approach and figure out how to do that in our ever-changing culture throughout our ever-changing lives until we die, till the last day of our lives. Now, let's, let's dig into our passage here a little bit here this morning. So I want to just touch base with a few things. So the first thing is the Hellenists. So in, in some of your Bibles, it will say Hellenists. But this word is actually translated more, you know, more, maybe more accurately, the Greek-speaking Jews. So these are people that uh, were Jewish people, Jewish people around the Roman Empire uh, who were known to have adopted the Greek language as their main form of communication because they lived in a Greek culture. Uh, but not only their language, but they also adopted Greek thought. They also adopted their customs and lifestyle as well. Now, the number one thing you don't see in this passage is them being rebuked for doing that. You don't ever see the people like saying, oh, you're, you're neglecting the, the Hellenists. Well, yeah, well, because you're, you adopted Greek culture, so you need, to change, you, know, you need to repent. They didn't say that. They simply said, okay, how can we love you? They didn't say, well, you should stop celebrating Halloween and Christmas and then we'll talk to you. They weren't super religious, trying to get them to observe one way of faith. Well, if you only turned back and only celebrated the Jewish holidays, you didn't celebrate that other stuff. No, they said, how can we love you because you are our brothers and sisters? 
Now, the Hellenists were kind of centered around, uh, the, you know, one of the central points was the, the Greek city of Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, this was, you know, much like our, maybe like say like our Ivy League, like up in the Northeast. Like this is the intellectual and academic uh, center of the Roman culture. It had a giant library of scrolls from all over. This was actually a centerpiece for Jewish scholarship as well. They had a massive library of all the Jewish scholars. And so it's no wonder that it became the center of the church scholarship around the age, around the, the time of the second and third centuries. Um, and a little bit later in the, in the fourth century. But, so we see this, this difference, and then we see these, uh, these Hebrew-speaking Jews. These are what, we, what they would call the pure Hebrews. We're the pure ones. We're the holy ones. We still wear our prayer shawls and old tassels. We still speak Hebrew. Well, they also speak uh, Aramaic. But these were the ones who did not assimilate to the Greek customs and culture around them. They didn't celebrate the pagan holidays. They didn't celebrate the, you know, they only celebrated the, the, the Hebrew, the Jewish holidays of you know, Hanukkah and you know, Yom Kippur and everything. Like they were good Jews. They were trying to be as faithful as possible. These, of course, were the ones that were more, more likely in Judea. The ones that were from Jerusalem and you know, up of the Dead Sea, Jericho, all the way up into uh, Galilee and over to Caesarea Maritima. So here we see already from the get-go, the first week of the church, there's division. There's arguments. There's offense. They would not have come to the disciples to say, hey, we've got a problem, unless they were offended. said, we are offended because we feel like we're being left out. Our widows are being left out. And so let's look at those. Who are being left out? They call them widows. So this is mainly the word that is used in both the Hebrew and the Greek to say, to say um, husbandless through death or simply by divorce. This is also uh, kind of attuned to the same word that's often used in the scripture of orphan. This is simply the fatherless. So the widows are husbandless, orphans are fatherless through death or divorce. Included both parents being dead, but often this word was used to refer to children who are simply fatherless. They still might have had a, a mom, a mother, but they didn't have that support system. So this would be like there's a story uh, of Elijah, or Elisha, sorry, Elisha in the Old Testament going to a Gentile land. Jesus actually refers to this later when he's in, in Nazareth. Uh, but he's saying he, that, that Elisha was sent to the Gentile lands to a widow and an orphan. Her widow and her son. So that's a widow and an orphan. Because he was fatherless. They did not have that support. Men have always had difficulty staying committed to their families. This is not a new trait. That's why it is so vital. That's why the culture of, of, he, of Israel... And the church was so centered on men being good fathers, sticking around, both for their wives and for their children. That's always been the epitome of godly men. It's interesting. There was a study done recently that showed, I think I may have referred to this a little while ago, but that basically that they studied children who were um, from divorced families. And the children who went with their mothers 
had all the statistics, like like we've heard, you know, pr- you know, prison and jail time. Like, you know, they're they're more likely to end up in jail or prison if their father's not at home. They're more likely to end up on the streets. They're more likely to end up committing suicide. They're more likely to to suffer with depression and anger. They're more likely to be divorced themselves and to leave their children, leave their families. All sorts of statistics. And of course, the, the only other, other thing that they really tested was with both parents in the home, which is much better, a much better lifestyle for children in a home with both parents. But it's interesting how the statistics varied very, varied very little of if the children were raised with their fathers from the children who were, married, who were raised by both their parents. The same statistics of success in many areas of life and protection from prison time, jail time, depression, anxiety, suicide was almost identical, a little bit less than children who were raised with both parents. Fatherless, father figures in the home are so vital for the, for the life and flourishing of our families, of our children. Our role in the family is vital for the for our families. And the and the Bible agrees with this so much. All the way back into the into the Jewish nation. There were time after time after time, scripture after scripture after scripture, that you know, the Bible has a lot to say about God's people taking care of the fatherless and the husbandless. So we're gonna just look at a few. This is Deuteronomy ten. Therefore cleanse your hearts and stop being so stubborn. For the Lord your God is, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who is unbiased and takes no bribe, who justly treats the orphan and widow, who loves resident foreigners, giving them food and clothing. So you must love the resident foreigner because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Revere the Lord your God, serve him, be loyal to him, and take oaths only, only in his name. There's only one faith that leads to God. He is the only one you should praise. He is your only God, the one who has done these great and awesome things for you that you have seen. Deuteronomy 16, you shall rejoice before him, you, your son, your daughter, your male and female slaves, the Levites in your villages, the resident uh, foreigners, the orphans and the widows among you in the place where the Lord chooses to locate his name. You are to rejoice in your festival. You, your son, your daughter, your male and female servants, the Levites, the resident foreman. He says it often in, Levit- in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You must not pervert justice. Do a f- resident foreigner or an orphan or take a widow's garment as a security for a loan. Whenever, whenever you reap your harvest in your field and, le- you, and leave some unraked grain there, you must not return to get it. It should go to the resident foreigner, orphan, and widow, so that the Lord your God may bless all the work you do. When you beat your olive tree, you must not repeat the procedure. The remaining olives belong to the resident foreigner, orphan, and widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you must not not do so a second time. They should go to the resident foreigner, orphan, and widow. This is the reason why we have the book of Ruth. She was a Moabite woman who was married to a, a, a man and you know, he died. So she went and lived with her mother-in-law and they traveled back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. They actually lived in Bethlehem. And this was how she met Boaz. She went to go glean 
what he left. So without Ruth, we would not have Jesus. So because of his ability to obey and love the resident foreigner, the alien, or the, the, the orphan and the widow, we have Jesus. The lineage of Jesus. Isaiah 1. Learn to do what is right. Promote justice. Give the oppressed reason to celebrate. Take up the cause of the orphan. Defend the rights of the widow. And I love the note on this word, on that word widow. So this, this word refers to a woman who has lost her husband by death or divorce. The orphan and widow are often mentioned in the Old Testament as epitomizing the helpless and the impoverished who have been left without the necessities of life due to the loss of a family provider. That's why there's so much more care that God commands to give to them, to support them, to sacrifice for them. Isaiah, this is jumping up, jumping forward to verse 23. But this is him correcting them. He said, your officials are rebels. They associate with thieves. All of them love bribery for look and look for payoffs. They do not take up the cause of the orphan or defend the rights of the widow. This is political, governmental corruption. Therefore, the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, the powerful one of Israel, says this, Ah, I will see vengeance against my adversaries. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will attack you. Who? The corrupt political figures. The, the corrupt leaders of God's people. Later on in the prophets, he even attacks the, 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 the priests and the leaders of the church. He attacks the, the leaders in saying, you've become them. This is, this is who they are. This is not just the political leaders. These are the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to care for God's people, to care for the foreigner, to care for the widow and orphan. There's a great note on, on this as well. The writ, this is from the NET notes. The rich oppressors referred to in Isaiah and the other 88th century prophets were not rich capitalists in the modern sense of the word. They were members of the, of the royal military and judicial bureaucracies in Israel and Judea. Israel and Judah. As these bureaucracies grew, they acquired more and more land and gradually commandeered the economy and legal system. At various administrative levels, bribery and graft became commonplace. The common people outside the urban administrative centers were vulnerable to exploitation in such a system, especially those like widows and orphans who had lost their, their family provider through death or divorce, through confiscatory taxation, conscription, excessive interest rates, and other oppressive governmental measures and policies. They were gradually disenfranchised and lost their property, and with it, their rights as citizens. The socioeconomic equilibrium envisioned in the law of Moses was radically disturbed. They started to be overstepping, an overstepping government, because they thought that, hey, we have this power, we, we should take advantage of it. Let's get more for ourselves and more for ourselves, expand our reach, expand our rule. They were tromping over the rights of their citizens by regulating and restricting and gobbling up more and more land and more and more property. And all this time, they were not observing any of the years of Jubilee where they would release all the land. 
and the, and the, you know the, the, where they would release all the debts, and all land would, would be returned to their original owners, their original families. And that's why Jeremiah later, later would even say, "Stop oppressing the resident foreigners who live in your land, children who have lost their fathers, and women who have lost their husbands." He's saying you must change the way you're thinking or living or what you're doing, how you're doing things. And then finally, in the, in the last uh, passage, even before this is after the exile. This is before Jesus, right before Jesus came. I will come to you in judgment. I will be quick to testify against those who practice divination, those who commit adultery, those who break promises, and those who exploit workers, widows, and orphans, who refuse to help the foreign, foreign resident foreigner, and in this way show them, show they do not fear me, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Yahweh established civil laws and regulations meant to protect the most vulnerable and bring flourishing to all the people of the land. Yet they didn't trust him. They said, we're going to control the system. We are going to do things. But they oftentimes benefited only them. Benefited these wicked rulers. Or the corrupt. Because those in elite power, most often, I would say 100% of the time, take that power and use and abuse it. Unless they are governed by, by the Lord, unless they're led by God, the ultimate result of anyone in, in, in an elite powerful position is to gain more power and for the people to be more and more oppressed. Unfortunately, through many years, there were many people, many who loved the power and position over the people, and they forgot their position was supposed to love the people and to, and to show God's love to God's people. And that's what the purpose of the church was. The church was meant to cultivate the original culture of the kingdom of God. He had always intended for his people. That's why right off the bat, what do they do? They start a daily distribution for the widows and the orphans. They start a daily ministry, a daily service. And like I said, the, the, the word food is actually not in the, trans, not in the Greek, but it's, it's in the connotation of the service or the, or the, or the distribution of most likely food. Uh, either, either distributing it distributing it, or even like feeding, like you know, having a, a big meal together. Um, so they established a ministry structure and organization for people's physical need to be taken care of so that the apostles could continue to take care of the spiritual needs of the ministry of prayer and God's word, as it says in verse 4. And it's interesting, this, to look at these people, this would become the standard for what we know now as deacons. The word in the Greek is diakonos. So this is the, are those who serve the physical needs of the church. So these are men or people of, what A, number one, good reputation. Two, are full of the Holy Spirit. And three, are full of wisdom. And what was the purpose? What was the original culture of the kingdom of God that he always intended, that he's, he gave apostles to, and now he's giving deacons to to serve? What is the culture that he was trying to cultivate, that he desires, has, has desired from day one with Adam and Eve. Love one another. 
systems and you know vision and mission statements and strategies and organizations everything a church says and does should all be ways God's people strive to ensure that his word is being taught and that people are being taken care of to love one another John chapter 13 this is Jesus says I give you a new commandment to love one another, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. First John, I'm not going to read... Oh, actually, this, this is the one. I'm, I was going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to read Revelation. That's what it is. First John. First John 3. I think this is worth reading. Just listen to the words of, of, of what he says to the church here in First in John. This is Jesus' best friend. For this is the gospel message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not like Cain, who was the evil one and brutally murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow brothers and sisters, Christians. The one who does, not, who, who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his fellow brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. We have come to know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Thus, we ought to lay down our lives for our fellow brothers and sisters. But whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we will know that we are of the truth and will convince in our conscience in his presence that if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than that that God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. Dear friends, if our conscience does not condemn us, we have confidence in the presence of God. And whatever we ask and we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing to Him. Now, this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he gave us the commandment in John 13. And the person who keeps the commandment, his commandments resides in God and God in him. Now by this, we know that God resides in us by the spirit he has given us. What did he say? By loving one another, what? Number one, we know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we have faith in God. We know and can have full assurance that we are saved that we are in God's kingdom by loving one another we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters now this word hate is an interesting word it doesn't mean to actually have this feelings of of badness or destruction against someone other the word hate is simply the void of love it's the absence of it it's a vacuum that fills. Because if it's not full of love, it's full of nothing. 
which he, which the Bible calls hate. If we are empty of love for our brothers and sisters, what does it say? We are murderers. Not showing up for your act group? Not showing up on Sunday mornings for church? Ghosting people from church? You're a murderer. Okay, that's a little bit a little harsh. It's interesting to look at Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. I'm trying, chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can kind of thumb there and, and kind of be looking at it real quick. But verses 1 through 7 are all about the first, first church that he talks to. It is in Ephesus. And he said, the love that you had at first. Now, all the time, you know, people will say, like, you know, you do this and you do that. Like, you have, you're great at, like, you know, persevering steadfastly and enduring for the sake of my name. And you haven't grown weary. And, you've, you know, you, you, you kick out the false teachers and everything. Like, you're really good at theology. You're really good at teaching. But you forgot to love. And it's interesting because most people, every time I've heard this preached, it's always about our love for God. He's talking about the love for one another. He's saying you've gotten really good at identifying the false people and, and you've, you've you know, gotten really good at enduring persecution and oppression from people. You've gotten really good at correcting people and having really great theology to correct people. But you forgot to love people. He never says a love for God. He said, you've forgotten the love you had at first. And what does he say? Go back and do the things you did at first. Well, what are the first things that they did? Acts chapter 6. They share, well, Acts chapter 2, really. They broke bread together, had fellowship, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer. They, number Acts chapter 4, they shared the possessions and sold land and, and came and laid it before the apostles' feet and distributed it as any one person had need. And then we have a passage right here that's talking about the system that they set up to take all the, the gifts that were taken from at the disciples' feet and turn it into food for widows and orphans. It's not simply the actions as though, okay, now we need to take care of widows and orphans. Who are In our society, who are the ones who are the most vulnerable? Who are the ones who are the most vulnerable? In our society now, it's still obviously the fatherless and the and the husbandless. It doesn't really necessarily change, but the way in which we love and support these people does. This image in Revelation is this image of remember the love that you had for one another in the beginning. Remember what you did. As an expression of that love. Remember how beautiful it was? Remember how self-sacrificing it was? Remember how good it felt? Do you remember how close you felt? Not simply because you were giving a gift and treating someone as a project, but because in doing so, you created a relationship with that person and took care of them. You even brought them into your house. You supported them. It's this practical and tangible love. It's a love that does. Like, anyone remember the, the old band, DC Talk? Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyone, woo, right? Love is a what? Love is a verb. Yes, the whole song is about him looking, you know, scrolling quick, you know, quick, fast in a hurry, threw on my specs because I thought, thought my vision was blurry. 
Looked again, but to my dismay, it was black and white with no room for gray. You see, the big V took me on my word. That's when it hit me, that love is a verb. And that's what we talk about. I mean, that's what we've been talking about for years. Gosh, I don't even know how many years we've been talking about this. But just for, as by way of reminder, Paul says it all the time, by way of reminder, the word love in the Greek, agape, and the word in Hebrew, chesed, is all about a loyal, steadfast, never-ending, reckless, befuddling love, devotion, loyalty. I've decided to love and serve you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Except for accept it. Except to receive it. Or reject it, but that's not going to make me love you any less. Loyal, steadfast love. A love, and that is the love that God has for you, and that's the love that we have for God, and that's the love that, we, that He has for us, and that we have for one another. That is the chesed, agape love that we have and experience. And the only time that the word agape is used is in the Bible. It's not a love that the world had any comprehension of. Theirs was and always and is today and always will be a love that is based on feelings and on reciprocity. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you don't scratch my back, I might stab yours. But it's interesting like how many people and even preachers and speakers and stuff like articulate. It's like they want to wound you with their words and convict you. And oftentimes like we don't. We leave a service and we're like, "Oh, that wasn't that wasn't a, a good one. He didn't make me feel like dirt today." Mm-hmm. I've been to those churches. I preach in those churches. I'm really good at convicting you. But, I mean, guys like, gosh, I, I watched a sermon recently about, from a guy that like, was really, really good at it. Paul Washer, back in the day. And he hurt, he hurt good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Conviction. I'm not passionate enough for God. But then I listened to you know, sermons from guys like Dave Arunia and Matt, and Matt Weaver. And I just feel the love of family. It's a father speaking to, or a brother speaking to his brothers and sisters. And you feel loved at the end of even a sermon. And that's what it should be. You shouldn't walk out wounded. You should walk out of this building with a spring in your step. Loved, and, and now you feel like you connected with someone. On a Sunday where you shared communion and broke bread together. You encouraged each other in the faith. You sang songs together. You listened to some weird guy speaking out his butt. But... But you come together around the table to experience God's presence. You experience the love of God and you use that love and you serve. And you show God's love by experiencing that here on a Sunday morning. Love serves and shows God's love because what was the purpose of the church? to love and serve one another and to put the Lord and his love on display. The church, as I said, is meant to be God's restored garden, restored relationship with God, with one another. This is not just humanity restored, but love restored. 
Now, I think as us as a church have to continually learn and relearn what it means to love. How we structure our church organization, how we do what we do, what we do, what we do, and why we do what we do. And I feel like we've got, we have a great, a great plan for that. Like, you know, I feel like our, our vision for the church is right in line with that. You know, the mandate of, you know, shifting everyday, normal, you know, ordinary relationships into authentic community to live God's adventure together fully alive. I feel like that that is a faithful representation of our purpose as the church. And that our groups, you know, like our, our gatherings on Sunday mornings, and especially now around the tables, and then our act groups, that smaller group, and then that discipleship group, that's the whole purpose of our faith. That's the whole way that Jesus did it, and that they cultivated into the early church. And all of our values and, and what it means to be transformed and to grow and what we do. Church is not programs. The church is creating relational opportunities to love one another. Our faith, the church, the reason we exist is to organize each other to love and serve one another. And when we love and serve one another well, and when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and say how good He is, and then they come in here and they see how good it is, and they come and experience how good it is, that's when the people will become into faith. When they experience the tangible gospel and the spoken gospel. Because the spoken gospel, I'm sorry, the lived gospel will give credence to the spoken gospel. And that tub will be overflowing with people coming to faith in Jesus and being baptized. When we learn to love well, and I think we love well. I think I've, I've had so many great relationships with, with every one of you. And I think you guys love so well. In different ways, but we love well. And so now it's, it's unencouraging. Like Paul always says, do it more. You already do this now, do it more. Love and encourage one another, do it more. Learn and grow and get the garbage out of your life so that you can do more good things and give more credence to the gospel. The authentic church of Jesus Christ will find a way to love at all costs, to show the goodness of our God, to show the reckless and befuddling love and devotion of our gentle Father. Now, we just have to figure out how to continually change our approach to how we do that in an ever-changing culture throughout our ever-changing lives. It's a a lifelong process. It's a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong adventure that God desires for us to live fully alive with Him and with one another. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would teach us how to love. Teach us how, God, to pour out ourselves to pour out you, your Holy Spirit, the, that you say is bubbling up within us eternal life. Lord, fill us to overflowing always and continually. Never leave us empty. You never desire to leave us empty. We are a constant spring of living water that we always have enough to give. So God, I pray that you would Take the cap off of some of us. Some of us have tried to plug it up. Lord, let it break free and to bring joy and let that joy love and serve and take care of the resident foreigner, the orphan and the widow 
in our church, in our city, so that we may make much of you, God. Put you on full display. Enjoy your presence here in the church. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.